Hey there. Thank you so much for joining us and uh, welcome. My name is Josh. This is Dharma Punks, New York. I'm a Buddhist pastor. So what that entails is I do everything by donation. Everything, the counseling, the teaching is all done just by donation from uh, people who uh get something from the teaching. So if you do to support the work, the Venmo is Dharma Punks NYC. Or you can use the PayPal button on the website. So that's about it. Tonight, emotions. What are they trying to tell us? How do we process them? Let's dive right in. Emotions are, well, they're complex amalgamations. Say a shift in our environment or in our bodies occurs, we suddenly become hungry or thirsty or cold, or um, suddenly uh, the lights go out, or the people that in childhood we rely on for care are not available. So there's a, a change. And this change will result in what we could call feelings. Essentially, they're changes in states of arousal and valence. Arousal or levels of excitement, uh, essentially different regions of the brainstem, if you really want to know the reticular activating system and the thalamus and the midbrain, essentially speed up if we become excited or they slow down if we become tired or overwhelmed. And valence is just changes in comfort or discomfort. So Comfort, muscles relax, we breathe slower, digestion occurs, circulation. If we're uncomfortable, muscles contract, the pleasant neurotransmitters and hormones are depleted in exchange for cortisol, uh, our respiration shifts, and so we respond first internally with states of, ex of arousal and states of comfort or discomfort. And in childhood and throughout the rest of our life, it's our fundamental wiring to convey shifts in our internal state to others. We signal our internal states to others. Infants, babies, toddlers signal our internal states that have shifted or have changed to our parents or caregivers for attention and support. So, for instance, if a baby feels suddenly hungry or thirsty, it might start crying or grasping for the mother. It might shake or flail. And then as we become toddlers, our emotional behaviors expand. We might laugh or hit or pull or make gestures. And all of these signals are there to get attention and support to let the adults around us know what's going on in our internal states. Throughout the first three years of life, roughly, when we are primarily right-brained, we're wiring the right brain, and what we're doing is we're learning how to signal others for attention, and that's what our emotional behaviors are about. They're letting other people know, letting adults, caregivers, know what's going on in us internally. And as we begin to 
learn what level of emotional behaviors gets the best attention, those processes become stored in memory regions and muscle movement regions like the basal ganglia and the striatum. So for instance, a child that has very attentive uh, parents might learn that just a little level of distress gets attention. But a child with parents that are um, overwhelmed, that have a lot of other children to take care of, that are not uh, very emotionally attentive, <clears throat> might learn that it needs to upregulate its distress, its cries, its gestures, whatever, to get attention. And so we begin to learn in these, these first countless thousands of interactions where we signal our caregivers for support and care, we begin to fine-tune the level of expression that we need to get attention. So we have internal states, and those internal states turn into behaviors or signals, which are uh, through thousands and thousands and thousands of uh, calls for attention get fine-tuned. Some children learn that they need to pitch their um, cries, their uh, body movements at a very high level. Some infants, if they do that, get negative responses. They fine-tune it. Some infants get very little response, and so they over time begin to auto-regulate and just keep their affect at a very low level. And then finally, the very last part of emotions is events in the neocortex, the ventral medial, prefrontal cortex, and the right orbital frontal, which create emotional decisions. But, so in general, that's what's going on. Internal shifts create external, we call internal shifts, we could call feelings, create emotional expressions, which are signals for attention. And there's, in general, we could call these emotions, um, and we can break them down into negative and positive emotional experiences. Negative is not a judgment. Negative would be uh, distressing emotions like fear, disgust, grief, anger, loneliness, um, which we would call survival first reactions. In other words, negative emotions tend to be about promoting the survival of one's body, oneself, at the expense of everything else. Positive emotions are pro-social. They help, as Barbara Fredrickson, great psychologist, noted, they serve another evolutionary purpose, which is to broaden our bonds with others. And human beings are species that survived by developing affiliations, uh, safety in numbers. So we have negative emotions to uh, survive and seek safety. And we have positive emotions in general to build alliances, new connections, new people, and so forth. So let's look at it. For example, let's go through some of the most common emotions. And of course, most of the time, our emotions don't fit into neat categories or labels, but I'm going to just act as if they did. So fear is a message 
that encourages us to leave a threatening situation. When we feel fear, there's internal states of alarm, high levels of arousal, and there's the impulse to run. And so that encourages us to leave a threatening situation, and it signals to others that we are feeling threatened and will not be engaging and with them anymore. Anger signals some form of outrage, a transgression, and it's the way we push back against uh, people or stimuli that's overwhelming for us. Uh, sadness processes loss. It signals that we're vulnerable to others. When we lose someone, an attachment figure, we grieve and we become sad and our shifts in our body language, we lower levels of arousal, states of discomfort, signaling changes in body posture, signaling downcast expressions and tears, signal to others that we are no longer a threat we're no longer going to be able to live up to our tribal expectations. And so uh, all of these uh, have, as you see, vital adaptive purposes. Disgust is how we express contempt and revulsion for unpleasant events and sensations. And our political beliefs are actually, believe it or not, deeply wired into the core emotional regions of the brain, the insula responsible for disgust. Uh, guilt encourages us to repair relationships we've damaged. Um, surprise is an affect state that stops us from acting, encourages us to seek more info. Ease and comfort allow us to uh, rest, digest, allows us to turn off hypervigilance, turn off the secretion of cortisol so that we can rebuild uh, and secrete, relax, and healing neurotransmitters ranging from serotonin to GABA. Joy is how we express elation at new tribal bonds. We uh, express joy and happiness when um, someone we haven't seen for a while returns. Laughter is how we cement relationships as well. When a friend says something that's slightly transgressive about someone that we work for or some, or some uh, thing, we laugh and because they've expressed something that we've previously held um, uh, to ourselves, but now we feel the sense of uh, laughter that essentially denotes that we share the same internal experience about something. Curiosity encourages exploration and deepening affiliation. So all of these emotions, primary emotions, they quickly identify what is uh, significant for our well-being and prepares us to adapt. And if we are emotionally well-regulated, uh, most of the time we'll have a blend of negative and positive emotions. The negative emotions will convey our needs for survival and, and well-being. The positive emotions will signal needs and uh, encourage attachment and bonding with others. So that's when everything's working well. Um, primary emotions are our initial 
reactions to events and they're automatic, they're fast and they're unconditioned. Secondary emotions, however, are how we respond to our primary emotions. Well, what does that mean? So for instance, some people can get really excited and laugh out loud at something and then feel suddenly ashamed that they've called attention to themselves. So the primary emotion is maybe they uh, giggle at a, or they laugh at a supposedly somber event, and then they become ashamed. That's a secondary emotion. Sometimes people can feel sad, but then become, replace the sadness with anger as a defense. And so secondary emotions are all about emphasizing compliance and um, about living up to social expectations. Primary emotions are fast, they're unsocialized, they are not necessarily affects that are going to make us look good to others. And if you haven't guessed it, very often uh, an over-dependence or self, um, uh, what do you call it, uh, uh, when, when our self becomes overly identified with secondary emotions, that leads to a lot of suffering in life. So for example, let's look at a few. In our culture, uh, men are very often socialized to and shamed for expressing fear or sadness. So they are trained in countless social peer interactions when they feel sad or frustrated or disappointed. They are trained to instead become aggressive or angry. So after a breakup, they're trained uh to get angry at their exes. After they don't get, uh, they fail a class, they get angry at the teacher. They're, or after a parent uh, doesn't respond positively, they're trained to just act as if nothing has happened. So in repressing or suppressing, I should say, these vital primary emotions of sadness and disappointment, um, the natural adaptive behaviors associated with grieving the disappointment of processing the loss of are not are, never occur. And instead, maladaptive behaviors where some men can only respond to every single attachment wound through getting angry. Of course, all that does is make us increasingly isolated. On the other hand, very often in our culture, um, misogynist culture, women are shamed for expressing anger or making unilateral confident choices. And they're trained to respond to mistreatment by, with either building consensus or being compliant, anything but express anger. Now, of course, if we shame women from expressing anger, then we're disempowering them from, from setting boundaries. Because if you cannot feel anger, you do not have the underlying emotional energy that gives us the confidence and strength to say, no, that's not okay. So in both of these cases, we see how 
repressing primary emotions and replacing them with secondary emotions doesn't make us more adaptive. They make us, in fact, less adaptive. Emotions that are rejected by family systems and cultures are unfortunately not integrated into one's self-structure. We begin to experience them as other and dangerous. So if somebody grows up in a family where uh, any degree of uh, attraction or happiness or uh, frivolity or um, certain behaviors are shunned, when they re-experience those emotions, they will feel uh, uncomfortable. They'll feel as if the emotions are, are dangerous and not part of themselves. Freud noted that when we consistently suppress and repress natural impulses, they continue to return. And when they return, we experience anxiety. And I think that's a fascinating uh, insight. For Freud, anxiety is not about so much worries about things that might happen to us in the world or in our life, or anxiety is really uh, the, the concern that we might experience a feeling or an emotional state that was not tolerated or ever introduced to us well in our childhood. Whenever, for instance, someone is shamed from their anger or from their, or expressing their loneliness or disappointment, if they start to feel those feelings as adults, they'll start to become anxious because they're now experiencing something that they've never integrated. And if we don't integrate our primary emotions, all of them, the entire variety from the, the most negative and distressed to the most positive and joyful all across the spectrum, then we'll have this internal sense that we're unlovable in some way, that we're broken. There'll be a sense of fragmentation. There'll be forever a fear that we're falling apart. And there's other uh, bad outcomes. Uh, people become increasingly uh, frightened of expressing themselves. People become scared of doing anything fluid in front of others, singing, dancing, moving, uh, because they have the sense that if they do become fluid and spontaneous, that, that thing that they were shamed for will become visible to others. So we can spend our entire lives trying to rein in and overly regulate our emotional expressions. And I've met many people who come to the spiritual life uh, with the hope that meditation can remove all of their fear, all of their disappointment, all of their sadness. And that's called the spiritual bypass when people turn to spiritual practice and meditation with the hope that we can get rid of uh, these entirely natural impulses and it doesn't work. So um, if we fail to integrate emotions, we become 
prone to indecision. We can't make choices. Now, why is that? Why is it that if we are, have limited emotion awareness or regulation, that choices become difficult? Well, uh, Famous neuroscience psychologist Antonio Damasio showed that the way people make decisions is by what was called the somatic marker hypothesis. In essence, in any situation in life, we hold different images or possibilities in our mind, and then we emotionally respond through what he called somatic markers or feelings. There's shifts in our body, circulation, skin valence, et cetera. And then the emotional circuits of the ventral medial read these shifts, and that's how we make choices. When individuals lose the ability to read their internal feelings and emotional states, they cannot make choices. And in fact, in Damasio's research, he found people who were had uh, 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 disruptions in their ventromedial axis, which is the emotion, the part of the frontal lobe that integrates emotions into higher order thinking and decision-making. And when these individuals, for some reason, couldn't process their feelings, even though they could be entirely logical and adult and have higher order thinking, they would never be able to make decisions because we don't make decisions in accordance with how we think. We make decisions in accordance with how we feel. We act in accordance with how we feel, not how we think. So the more we are unaware or learn through time to become overly analytical, overly uh, intellectual, overly disconnected from our bodies. It comes at the expense of entirely adaptive actions, and it comes at the expense of making decisions. It also uh, comes at the expense of prioritizing joy and connection, and will co consistently instead choose self-reliance and financial security, because that's something that the uh, disembodied mind always gravitates to. It's our emotions that propel us to connection, to bonding. So if we struggle to feel some of the positive emotions, like joy, elation, uh, uh, ease, comfort, whatever, then, or if those emotions have been shamed out of us, or if we've gone to too many uh, wounding interpersonal experiences, we might not know how to prioritize these needs. So another way that primary adaptive emotions are repressed is through rumination. Uh, when we have emotional experiences, we try to downregulate the intensity of the feelings or the discomfort by thinking a lot, by replaying the experience, and by turning it into some kind of internal uh, representation that, for some reason, we think provides meaning or understanding, but simply is a way actually to inhibit natural adaptive action. So for example, when we feel mistreated by a boss or a friend or a roommate, 
instead of feeling anger and just being with the anger and then listening to the needs of the anger and then setting boundaries, we instead may seethe with, with resentment. And the resentment actually comes at the expense of setting boundaries. It Overthinking or rumination is inhibitory. It uses the frontal lobe to inhibit the natural emotional impulses that primary emotions convey. Um, so, for example, if we lose a relationship, if we can't feel grief and process the loss in our right brain, instead we may bathe in self-pity, tell stories about it that we'll never find anyone, or why does this always happen to me, or why did I choose to date someone from, from Philadelphia, whoever knows, but we'll engage in rumination and self-pity as a way to protect ourselves from the grief, but in so doing, we never get over the loss. We never process it. Uh, if during times we feel vulnerable due to lack of, of core uh uh, community and friends and attachments, if we feel vulnerable, many people instead catastrophize. They just get lost in thoughts about all the terrible things that could happen to them in the future. And this catastrophizing, for some reason, makes them feel safe, but it comes at the expense of actually, um, actually feeling the loneliness and vulnerability and reaching out for support. If during times of where we've made some kind of interpersonal um, mistake, we've said something we shouldn't have, we forgot to call someone when we promised. If we protect ourselves from our guilt by rationalizing away the, the event or start to ruminate about how we're victims too of the same thing, we will never take the adapt adaptive action associated with, with guilt, which is to repair the bonds and to reconnect and to take positive actions. So the expense of, that comes from rather than feeling, connecting, hosting emotions, and instead immediately going into just repeating the story, adding resentment or self-pity or catastrophizing or all the stories we add on inhibit natural, very often natural responses. And sometimes they can come at the expense of building community and connection. Um, so finally, a couple of other notions. Uh, dysregulation happens when we can't metabolize our primary emotions. They build up as action potential and they will explode disproportionately. So disproportionately. So if someone doesn't know how to feel anger, well, guess what? The anger just doesn't go away. It stays there as a latent, uh, uh, unfinalized uh, emotional behavior that's still active in the basal ganglia, the striatum, et cetera, all those lower regions of the brain. And then the moment someone entirely neutral does something that irritates us, 
all the pent up anger might become expressed and essentially vented. So that is why we have road rage incidents. Why, you know, people who have a lot of stresses in their life and feel mistreated by work colleagues or bosses or have, uh, they feel um, mistreated by loved ones, they don't have good boundaries, and they build up all of these, this anger that is never processed in the body. And instead, what happens is some neutral event on a highway, so they get cut off. And the next thing you know, they're getting in a fist fight with a stranger, or perhaps worse. Um, and another outcome besides emotion dysregulation, where we act, uh, we suddenly act out, vent or, or deflect all of these pent up emotions onto someone who doesn't deserve it, is also uh, automatic muscle contraction. People defend against their emotions by clenching. And uh, I don't know if you've ever uh, stumbled across the book by uh, John Sarno, Healing Back Pain, a uh, back doctor basically proposed that pretty much the vast bulk of back pain didn't come from actual any physical injury, but came from people habitually clenching, defending against their stress, their emotions, tightening, trying to keep their emotions from from being truly felt. And all of this clenching essentially cuts off blood flow and over time leads to real physical pain. So it starts out as just a defense against one's emotion, but it turns into somaticization, backaches, headaches, even people clench against their uh, fear or their loneliness they clench their stomach muscles, which leads to digestive disorders. So there's a lot of bad news that comes from not being emotionally in tuned, emotionally aware. Now, before I jump into the positive processes, I should also note that not all primary impulses are always helpful. There are uh, some times where we have what's called evolutionary mismatch. What that means is our brains evolve very gradually while our environments changed very rapidly. So the traits that were once adaptive are now very, or sometimes maladaptive. So we have a tendency to overindulge in uh, sugary, bright colored foods, because in the, in our, over the course of evolution, if you saw something that was orange and sugary, it was good for you. It was probably an orange or, you know, a grapefruit. And that had a lot of vital nutrients, but today you go to any corner and there'll be a store that sells processed sugars or carb-rich foods. That's of absolutely no nutritional value, and it hijacks our dopamine reward system, so we can become emotionally overexcited by that. We also are overstimulated by bright, shiny things that move. So guess what? Smartphones, social media, dating apps, and all that. Uh, are very addictive. We're also too prone to conformity due to our uh, evolutionary past, which depended upon 
maintaining tribal affiliations, we tend to make too many important decisions by trying to please others. So there are times, in other words, where our feelings and affects might not always be um, the most adaptive, but generally in life, we become aware of those times because they lead either into states of addiction or to states of where our tribal bonds start to immediately fall apart. But other than those uh, instances of evolutionary mismatch, very often there's an enormous amount, well, there's always an enormous amount, no matter what, to be gained for pausing, checking in with what we are feeling and the behavioral impulses that are arising to discern what they're trying to express and reflect how we can skillfully integrate these emotional needs into our interpersonal life and into our the way we take care of ourselves. So pausing and checking in is vital. The Buddha said the key is observing over time what emotional behaviors promote connection, esteem, or result in disappointment, guilt, or uh damage. In the wonderful Kalama Sutta, the Buddha says, basically, don't live in accordance with traditions, rumors, holy scriptures, axioms, elaborate reasoning, or what any, you know, caregivers, parents, or tribe says to be true. When you see that an emotional impulse leads to harmful outcomes, then we learn to not act out on them. But he never says we learn to uh, try to get rid of. In the Satipatthana, the Buddha talks about the way we relate to feelings and emotional states is by observing them. So he says, when we feel an unpleasant feeling, simply know I'm feeling a painful feeling. When we're feeling a pleasant feeling, simply know I'm feeling a pleasant feeling. When the mind, he goes on, is inflamed with passion, observe the passion. When the mind is calm, observe the tranquility. And he goes on and lists all these states, and he says, Remain focused on our internal experiences, watching as it arises and passing away without adding any judgment. So that is the very foundation of uh, Buddhist spiritual practice and a Buddhist emotion regulation. What we're trying to do is learn to experience, tolerate, and eventually put into words or symbolize our nonverbal internal states in a way that we can uh, integrate the needs that they're communicating. Uh, once again, at the very beginning, we went through all of the different emotions and the needs that they're communicating. You know, uh, fear is saying, I need to uh, 
remove myself from a threatening situation. Anger is a way to uh, push away transgressive stimuli or people that are overwhelming. Uh, shame, or I should say guilt, conveys that we've done something that harms tribal bonds. Disgust is a way to process something that is a, we, we cannot tolerate, is a sensation or event that causes a great deal of discomfort, so on and so forth. Loneliness is a state that conveys a need to connect. And so all of these emotional states are conveying information to us. And if they're too hot, we'll act them out. On the other hand, and we won't ever really learn, we'll just vent them in a dysregulated way. If they're too, um, if they're too low, or if we can't read our bodies, then we'll never be able to integrate the wisdom of emotions into our life. So key to emotion regulation is becoming aware of what we're experiencing internally, regulating it to the right level so that we can begin to understand what we're feeling, being able to symbolize it so that we can eventually express it to others. And that means simply know, have a sense, am I frightened? Am I lonely? Am I tired? Am I, uh, do I feel angry? Whatever. And we don't have to nail it totally right, but just enough that we can convey through language our internal states and we can start making good decisions in our life. So one of the keys we'll be using in our practice as a way to develop emotion regulation without <coughs> having the emotions feel too overwhelming is uh, suffusing them through the body. Um, this uh, famous sutta by the Buddha, um, the where he teaches that if you have a, a teaspoon of salt, if you put it in a cup of water, you can't drink it because the salt is too strong. But if you put it in a reservoir, the drinking water in the reservoir is still drinkable because it's become completely suffused. So if you, instead of defending against and suppressing and tightening and cutting off emotions, if we open the entire body, uh, as Kathy was noting this weekend in her talk at the gathering, if we diffuse the emotion through the body, it's like diffusing the salt through the reservoir. It doesn't feel as intense. Likewise, if at times we bring in external sensations, sounds or other sensations, also the uh, intensity of emotions go down. Also, if we breathe comfortably, when I get um, a tattoo, you might be shocked to know I get tattoos, um, but as much of a surprise as that is to you, um, when I get tattooed and the pain gets a little strong, what I do is I first bring other sensations in. I tune to hearing, to sight. I'm not trying to push away the pain in the body. I'm trying to simply bring more sensations in. So likewise, if we are feeling an overwhelm of loneliness or disappointment or sadness or uh, whatever other affect state we're in, 
if we're feeling that overwhelm, we don't, the normal way we might respond is by trying to immediately turn on television, do something to immediately distract ourselves from it or clench against it and try to push it down. But the way of regulation is to instead allow it to be there, bring all these sensations in around us, then allow the emotion to spread and suffuse through the body begin to at, label it, because when you label an internal state, your left hemisphere begins to down-regulate the emotion itself, and then finally ask what it needs. So we're going to be doing this now in our meditation practice. We're going to be doing a practice that is, uh, in Buddhist circles, known as RAIN. Uh, it was developed by Michelle McDonald, Tara Brack, and some others. And uh, basically, RAIN stands for recognize, allow. So recognize what affect or emotion is present, allow it to spread. While it spreads, observe or investigate. And N means nurture. It means what is this emotion trying to tell me? How can I meet its needs in a positive way? Can I simply express it? Can I... Um, is there some action that I need to take? But in processing the emotion and not allowing the overwhelm and getting the right level of arousal, we generally will be able to integrate its needs in a skillful way. So thank you for listening. And now it's time to do some rain. So I hope that was worth your attention. So find a very comfortable seated position. And for this practice, you can either close your eyes or you can keep your eyes open, but don't look at anything that's stimulating. Look at something that is settled and relaxing. So if you want to keep your eyes open, just look at perhaps the floor or window but hopefully not a window that opens to too much activity. Closing the eyes, just begin to allow the eyes to settle and rest and float comfortably in the eye sockets. And then we're going to bring attention to the first markers of our internal state, we're going to find what is the sensations of contact with the chair or the floor, if we're lying in a couch or bed, whatever is making contact, just find those sensations and then try to relax any tightness, uh, muscle contraction, resistance, just allow yourself to sink fully into whatever is supporting you. Again, your chair or yoga mat or couch or bed or stool. Just sink into your support 
and just become aware of those sensations. And what we're doing here is we're becoming internally aware, or as it's known, interoceptive. And this is important because all emotion regulation starts with just being able to keep our awareness on our internal experience. And while to many this might sound like a given or obvious, there are countless individuals who struggle simply knowing what they're feeling. So just find those sensations of contact, and if you can, breathe into them, relax them. Try to make those, those uh, sit bones, thigh muscles, whatever is connecting with the ground as relaxed as you can. And then any other muscles that might feel needlessly tight move around your body and just know it as my, my shoulders feel as relaxed as they can. Are the muscles in my stomach as released and soft? Do I have a soft belly? Are the muscles, the cranial muscles in my face, do my, the muscles around my mouth and forehead, are they as relaxed as they could be? Can I breathe in or whisper, relax and soften them? And now go to any sensation that is dominant. It could be internal, maybe a still uncomfortable sensation, or maybe a pleasant sensation. Maybe it's just a twitching or a Or it could be an external sensation. Maybe there's a sound in the environment that's calling your attention or uh, an aroma. And just note whatever is the present time sensation that is most calling to our attention. Just rest your awareness on it. Just keep it in the forefront and just observe it as it changes. And what we're trying to do now is develop an awareness that doesn't add any judgment or story. 
that just becomes aware of sensations and observes without adding any, any thought, any criticism, any resistance. Now, see if you can find the most pleasant sensation in your body, whether it just feels comfortable in the palms of your hands or your feet feel comfortable or the eyes feel soothing or any other area of the body, see if you can find some comfort. And what we're going to do for a little while is just practice spreading or suffusing, allowing that ease and comfort to spread through the body. So we're working first with pleasant feelings. The Buddha called Sukha. So, allowing pleasant sensations to spread. And this will come in useful because one will be practicing bringing our attention back again and again to a sensation in the body. And two, we're going to practice spreading that sensation. So, later when we do the emotion regulation strategies, all of these tools will come into play, being aware of the body, not judging the body, keeping attention as it changes and spreading an emotion or feeling through the body. So we'll just sit here in silence for a while and just each time your thoughts intercede, lure your attention away, that's okay. Just practice again and again, bringing yourself back to the present by just finding the most pleasant sensation you can, relaxing into it and spreading it.
So once again, we've been paying attention to an internal sensation without adding any judgment. We've been allowing it to, encouraging it to spread. And so now we're going to further develop this into a full integration of mindfulness into emotion regulation, where we're going to process an emotional experience in a way that's adaptive and enhances well-being. So what I'd encourage you to do is bring to mind an emotional event, one that's not too hot, as in something that you haven't had any opportunity to um, talk about or is associated with a trauma, something that was uh, difficult, but not to the level of the traumatic where we were in a state of shock, shock or overwhelm. Obviously, we don't want to try to process traumas alone. That's the work of finding a secure environment with others who are equipped to help us work through. So bring to mind a difficult, maybe unpleasant event, but one that isn't too overwhelming. Maybe a discouraging interaction with a friend, roommate, stranger on the street, or a uh, an attachment figure, a parent, or a relationship partner. And what I'd encourage you to do is just hold in your mind an image that represents the event, but we're not going to turn it into rumination. We're not going to replay the story. We're just going to find a few images that represent, that activate the feelings concerning this experience. So if you had an unpleasant interaction, bring to mind as intensely as you can the situation, the place where it occurred in your mind, the person, their facial expression, or if you can't visualize though most of us can remember unpleasant events, if you struggle right now, just try to find the simplest words in your mind, no more than three or four, just to activate the feelings. And so what we're going to do is simply try to find in our bodies the subtle or overt shift that expresses guilt, anger, sadness, disappointment. If it was a experience associated with someone not showing up for us, it might be loneliness or, or it might be a sense of just sadness blended with disappointment. If it was mistreatment, it might be a feeling of anger or uh, 
or even rage. So see if you can find, and if the emotion is too overly regulated, we might not be able to find it. We might need to keep trying with different images. But if, on the other hand, the emotion is too hot, we need to slow down our breathing and allow it to spread rather than try to keep it contained. Emotions diffuse in the body if we try to clench or contract or push down or limit it to our belly, then the feeling becomes actually more intense. So just allow whatever it is you need to feel to diffuse, suffuse through, suffuse through the body. Sometimes we might even get to the point where we might want to shake or clench our teeth or furrow our brow or just, and just allow the energy to move through the body without cutting it off, without trying to resist. And just saying, it's okay, it's okay, I can feel this way, allowing it, investigating it. And then finally, what we want to do is nurture or take care of these sensations, feelings, this affect, this emotion. We might even visualize an inner child that is conveying its needs to us through these feelings, through this whatever it is we've connected with. And when you get to a place where you can allow an internal state to become fully present, that's when 
we begin to regulate the emotion, not regulating as in pushing away or inhibiting, but one, simply ask, what does this emotion want most of all? Deep down, what is it yearning for? What is it what is it missing the most? What is it longing for? If the answer is to scream or push, cut off someone or to attack or just be alone, then the emotion isn't yet, the feeling isn't yet regulated, hasn't yet settled enough. But if the feeling is settled enough, the yearnings, longings are not about getting rid of someone or something, not about cutting off. They're mostly about an unmet need for attention, for care, for understanding, for boundaries. What is most Beneath it all, what real deep need is not being met? Something that we can convey in words to another or something without any violence we can introduce to our life. maybe more need for space or more need for relaxing and well-being if the dominant sensation is exhaustion or maybe, who knows? Interpreting emotions into adaptive acts is the highest skill of our adult life, along with maintaining interpersonal bonds. If we can understand what our emotions are conveying, we can find truly fulfilled lives with others. So I'm going to ring the bowl here. I'm not sure if it'll break the filter on the Zoom, but if you hear the sound or just any point from this moment on, just slowly open your eyes and integrate the visual and auditory cues from the world around you.